this podcast, Walt Rakowicz talks about transfluence, how to lead in transformative times. So stay tuned. Welcome everyone to Work 2.0 podcast. Today we have with us an amazing guest and, and an amazing story. Um, and I think I would love to get on, on the conversation very soon. So I welcome Walt um, Prakowicz in our conversation. So he's a leader, speaker and former executive at Prologis, uh, a global real estate company that was near collapse uh, when he took over as CEO in 2008. During the economic downturn, the, the Prologis stock has dropped from over $70 per, per sh- uh, share to approximately $2 per share in just mere 10 months, making it the third worst uh, performing company in S&P 500. After Walt joined as CEO, he quickly implemented a change in culture through transparency, orchestrating a dramatic uh, turnaround and restoring its position in the industry. He is also the author of Transfluence, uh, How to Lead with uh, Transformative Influence in Today's Climate of Change, uh, which the, is about to release in uh, in September end. In addition to speaking to audience on a range of leadership topic, uh, Walt also serves on a number of uh, corporate and philanthropic boards. Uh, before starting his business career, Walt attended a Penn State University where he received uh, his BS in accounting. He went on to earn his MBA from uh, Harvard Business School. In his free uh, in his free time, Walt enjoys traveling, mentoring youth, and participating in a wide range of community service initiatives. He and his wife Sue have two adult children and reside in Colorado. With that, Walt, welcome to the conversation. Great to be on, Vishal. Thank you. Awesome. Thank you very much. So I think this is this is a, a a pretty nice package, right? So walk us through walk us through your journey. Okay. I'd be, uh, I'd be happy to do so. Um, so I grew up in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, which is how I ended up going to Penn State. Um, and I'm a grandson of uh, European immigrants, actually, that came over. Um, I, I'd like to focus a little bit and, and tie my leadership journey into um, some of the things that have happened. And, and I would just say that it's been molded by really so many things, not the least of which is my upbringing. Um, I, I, I like to tell people I was very fortunate. I hit the parent lottery. As I as I like to say, you know, my parents didn't really have a lot of financial wealth, but they had a heck of a lot of wealth and support and love, and I, I think it really really started from that. Uh, you know, they're very hard work, working people, and um, you know, the one thing that that always hit me is that they they appreciated people for who they were, um, and not what they had, and that's probably because they didn't have that much themselves, and you know, I, I have to tell you that had an, an incredible impact on on my leadership philosophy as time went on. Um, I went to, as you said, I went to Penn State University um, and um, graduated in accounting and, and, and I got out and I worked for, for the first four years at Price Waterhouse, um, and, um, which, was, which was a great opportunity for me. And then I went on to Harvard Business School, as you mentioned. And, and you know, looking back on Harvard Business School, it's so funny because um, I, I still today wonder how in the heck I got in. I mean, I, I, I remember the first day looking around and seeing all these people and I thought, you know what, I'm not sure, I might be the dumbest person in this room. I, I just don't know. And, and, uh, and uh, you, know, it's, it, 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 you know, I found myself, frankly, digging deep. And, um, you know, I think I was hoping that it wasn't, the leadership wasn't all about brilliance because if it was, 
I could see that there were a lot of captains of you know future captains of industry that were a lot brighter than me. But but as you know, sometimes in an academic setting, it's 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 a false laboratory. And I got out um, and I took my first job with a company called Trammell Crow Company in um, in real estate in in development, real estate development. And it was there that I worked for a boss that I probably, I don't know that I've ever worked for a better boss in my life. And um, I, I just absolutely loved working for this guy. And he was fun. He was full of life. He cared for everybody that, that worked for them, generous with his time. But, you know, at the end of the day, he just wanted us to be the best we could be. And he, he was devoted to make us the best that we could be. And I realized that success in the job is not about brilliance. I hearkened back to Harvard Business School. I, I, it was really more about how you treated people. I mean, that, and at the end of the day, how you influence people in your, in your lives have a lot to do with your success. And um, I, cause I, I just believe that people work harder for leaders that they care. And, and so, you know, after that, I probably, you know, I had plenty of things that, that affected me and affected that leadership journey. But I would say the most important one is the one I'll probably spend just a little bit more time on. And that is, as you started to mention, what happened to me at Prologis. Um, and this was in the downturn. Uh, roughly, the, the years would be 2007 through, through 2012. Um, and I, I really had a crucible moment. Um, you know, during that time, uh, Prologis, really, I, I'd been there for about 15 years. Prologis had grown into uh, a very large company over time. And, and as, as you mentioned, a member of the S&P 500 and the like. Um, but, you know, and I had risen through the ranks through um, uh, in an operational role, the chief financial officer to president, chief operating officer. And at that point in time, um, I was the number two person in the company and I worked for a CEO who was one of the most brilliant people that I ever mentioned or that I ever uh, um, met. But it was interesting. He believed that he was always right. Uh, he paid very little attention to what other people's people had to say. In some respects, he had narcissistic tendencies. Um, and I think that caused him sometimes to twist the truth and withhold the truth. And it was really a tough environment. I mean, I, 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 I really struggled with, you know, how do I work with this person? And after about three or four years of doing it, I, I went to the board and I said, look, I, I think the CEO is running us over the cliff. I, I really do. And I don't know when it's going to happen, but I could see the culture changing. People were working in silos. They, they weren't communicating with one another because they were fearful about what the CEO would think. And is this something that he would agree to or not agree to? And, and then finally, in, in January of 2008, I left the company. And as you mentioned, at that point in time, the company had a total market cap of a little over $20 billion and, and we were trading at about $70 a share. And um, about 10 months later, just watching the stock go down and down and down and, and um, you know, it hit a low of $2 and 20 cents a share in November of 2008. And I got a call from the board of directors and they said, uh, Walt, we need to move on with the CEO that's here. You were right. And we'd like you to come back and, run the company and, and turn around the company. And I have to tell you, I, I knew it was going to take a Herculean effort at that time. I mean, people had lost faith in management. They had um, lost faith in, in, in overall leadership. They lost confidence. Um, but, you know, I tell you, 
I, I found out in retrospect, crucible moments are sometimes our best opportunities. And it, it was for me. And so over the next four years, I learned a lot about leadership in, in a very, very difficult time. And, and really that time is what inspired me to write the book, I would say in general. Um, it, it, was, it was what I learned during that time and during that turnaround that got me here, I think. Interesting. I think that that is so. Um, by the way, fascinate, fascinating story. I think that's something that um, we aspire to gain from someone who had taken that tough walk when things are not going. Like it's 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 amazing. It's it's pretty much like uh, pretty simple to run a company that's going on a hockey stick growth, but only when sort of things are on on the reverse trend how to bring right. it back. So when you, I want us to spend more time on that particular aspect. So when you say join a company that is going uh, haywire, right? That's going south and leadership has a problem. And then, the, and you're absolutely right. So when things are not working, the trust starts sort of to evade. Many of the cultural fabric that at some point brought the company together is now, it's one of the worst enemy that the company needs to fight. So how would, you um, or how would like what were what were your some of the recipes that helped you indulge with that toxicity and trying to bring that company back we'll resume after a short break this part of the podcast is brought to you by first friday fair fastest ai powered way to find your next opportunity check out the website firstfridayfair.tao.ai and find your next dream job let's get back to the podcast um, well, first of all, um, before I, let's let's put it this way, I, when I when I didn't feel like I could be when I exhausted all of my influence, I actually left the company. Um, can't uh, you know if we if we harken back to early two thousand and eight? I did leave because I didn't feel like I could make that impact. Um, so in all situations, it's I mean some situations it's impossible, and I and I I was feeling the weight of that impossibility in early 2008. But when I came back as the CEO of the company, I think we were able to change many of the, the things that, that you know, the way that people thought about the business. And, and I personally believe it starts with you. Um, you know, all culture emanates from the top. It really does. And um, people watch a leader. Um, and, and so from my perspective, um, I, I did a couple things. One, I, I think I think there's a real benefit to leaders overcoming their own fears and pride. <laughs> it, the, the, the two most difficult things the leader has to deal with are fear and pride. Quite frankly, they're all about themselves. If they can get past that and they can become about other people, not about themselves, um, they can build trust. Because trust, you, you know, you mentioned trust is the essence of leadership. If you can build trust, you can do a lot of great things. If you have no trust, it will break down. But, but building trust means that a leader needs to focus outside of themselves, not inside of themselves. It's very interesting. Harvard Business Review did an article a couple of years ago about fear. And uh, they, they asked 116 C-level executives what it was that they feared the most. And you would have thought that they would have said, oh, they fear, you know, their people leaving or they fear not meeting their financial results or no, in actuality, they feared other things. They feared 
underachievement. They feared being vulnerable and being politically attacked. I mean, there, there were all these things that came up about the things that they feared, and it was all about themselves. And when people see that in a leader, uh, when they see that they can't operate outside of themselves, they're self-absorbed, you'll never build trust in an organization. So the first thing I think the whole management team had to do was just that. Um, and and, and there, are, there are other things that, you know, you talk about transparency. We live in a world right now of glass houses where everything a leader does, everybody in the world can see. Everybody. And, and by the way, if you don't uh, agree with me, just go on social media and some chat room and see what your employees are saying about you. Guess what? Somebody's commenting someplace about you, you know? And so the only way that we combat this transparent world is to be transparent ourselves, incredibly open and transparent, um, which I think as a management team, we did. And so, you know, there's, there's overcoming your fears. There's dealing with transparency through being overly transparent. And then I think that you've got to lead with a strong core set of authentic values. I really do. Um, I, I think people in the in the audience, if you will, your employees need to know what do you lead by? What do you stand for? I mean, what does this organization stand for? And you know, what are the truths in this organization? And if we know what those truths are, um, and we know who you are, uh, we can begin to believe you, and we can begin to trust you. And 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 so those are some you know key overarching. Um, ideas that I think we brought to the organization that we're missing. Interesting. I think um, it. Uh, I was thinking about one conversation I had with this one executive um, for one of the largest automaker uh, during the during sort of the the downturn times, and and he was suggesting to me, Vishal, you know what? When the market is going up, you market is a lot more tolerant to whatever shenanigans you are putting together right they don't sort of it's okay you can do whatever not not much question asked but when the markets start going south you are pretty much becoming the puppet of your of your next quarterly call and you're just it's it's in a way the 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 capitalist aspect or the marketing the market aspect of the business takes over and now you are trying to sort of and, and he was saying that it was an immense pressure for many of the businesses who are going through this downturn to justify their existence in the market that they pretty much like it erode them to work sane through their, their normalcy when they used to and they they can they, they were focusing on building the business so walk us through so walk us through some of your perspective like what did you see so when you were at, at prologis and you you saw that that impact how do you how do you come at peace with these two sort of uh, conflicting forces one is okay be progressive think about the future and the other is meet the numbers otherwise it's the market is going to punish you so how do you bring these two worlds together okay so um like you say you know when the tide goes out everybody's exposed <laughs> that's i mean when when the water's in you can hide a lot of things but when the tide goes out everybody's exposed right so you know what Here's, here's, here's my point of view, and I'm a, I'll give you an example. That's okay. And, and this is where transparency comes in. Let me give you something, an example of something that happened to me. So this was about two months on the job. I had come back November 2008, okay? And um, I'm sitting there in a room, and all of my financial people around me, my CFO, 
treasurer and the whole entourage of finance people. And it's about one o'clock in the morning. I mean, we are working dog years, okay? And we're going home at two and we're getting back up at six and getting back in the office, and, you know. So um, somebody says to me, and I can't remember, well, I just want you to know that I think next month, probably next month, we're gonna blow the covenants on six to $7 billion in bonds, um, blow our financial covenants. And I, I looked at him, I said, what does that mean? And he said, well, well, I don't see any other way around it, but we have to declare bankruptcy. Now, I had worked for the company before I came back for 15 years, and I had hired a lot of the people that were there, Vishal. So it was very difficult for me. And honestly, I turned white as a ghost. So I said, I looked at everybody in the room. I said, you know, do you guys mind if I just get some, you know, I need, need some fresh air? And they said, no, that's fine, Walt. So I left the room. I walked down the hall, and I'm feeling like I'm going to faint. Okay. And I turn, I turn and I see that there, in this office that's there, there's a chair. And I start, you know, quickly walking to the chair to sit down. And unfortunately, I didn't make it. And I hit my head against the corner of the desk and split my head open. Okay. And I'm laying on the ground. And about 10 minutes later, I wake up and there's a puddle of blood there. And at first, first 30 seconds, I swear I didn't know where I was. And then all of a sudden, the first thing that hits me is, oh, my God, I got 10 or more people in the room. They're still waiting for me to come back. They're probably wondering where I was. So I quickly go to the bathroom. I suture it up as best I could, you know, get it to stop bleeding. I walk into the room and I said, well, let's start talking about this bankruptcy thing. And my CFO looks at me and he said, no, Walt, first, let's talk about that egg on your head. <laughs> How in the hell did that get there? Okay. And I got to tell you something. Talk about being exposed. That's what I, I just was talking. I mean, I, I, I felt like, you know, I had nowhere to go. And I look at everybody in the room and I told them the story and I said, I fainted. I said, and you know why I fainted, guys? I got to tell you something. I don't have the answers. I don't have the answers. I'm hired. I was hired two months ago to be the CEO and I don't know how to get out of this. And the only people that are going to help me figure this out is you. And what I thought, I, you know, in looking back on it, I realize that there's actually power in vulnerability. There really is power in transparency and openness. Okay. And sometimes leaders have a difficult time doing it because you know what? They're the boss. They're supposed to have the answers. They're hired to turn it around. Right. But in fact, the reality is the CEO doesn't turn it around. The CEO creates the environment to it being turned around, but the people in the organization are the ones that turn it around. And so what the CEO needs to do is empower people. And sometimes empowering people means you got to be vulnerable and it means that you've got to be open and you got to share things that really are uncomfortable. Okay. But you know what happens when that happens? Everybody in the room that night felt empowered. They, they said, and the first thing they said to me is, Walt, you know what? Relax. We're going to figure this thing out. We don't expect you to figure this out. Just let us think about it. And guess what? They came up with the answer. I didn't come up with the answer. They did. And so th this is a power. I think it's a powerful lesson. I think it's so hard for CEOs and for leaders to put themselves aside, realize that the answers are really amongst all the people. We'll resume after a short break.
This part of the podcast is brought to you by First Friday Fair, fastest AI-powered way to find your next opportunity. Check out the website firstfridayfair.tao.ai and find your next dream job. Let's get back to the podcast. That are around them and energize them, energize them to come up with the answers. Interesting. I think that's that's fascinating. So, to, I think these are truly transformative times. Like we are sitting at our, our homes. We are hoping to get out of this this COVID phenomena, and many of the shops are closed. We we are not looking at our our books value the way we we used to when things are working as they should. So yep. many of once the economy open and it's already impacting a lot of businesses, and we are seeing sort of uh, it's it's like we are going in that turf that where you joined this particular company. So. What would you like? How would you? What would you say to those people who are navigating these uncharted waters, actually about to go in those uncharted waters? How would they they react? How how should they they get into this when things are not working? Okay. First of all, I would say this. Uh, a lot of people ask me, um, you know, can, can you compare the two thousand and eight financial crisis to this one? And I always say that. Actually, you can't compare any financial, any crisis. No crisis is the same. But I actually believe the way you manage through crises are actually fairly similar. I, I would say that I think that this crisis, this COVID crisis, while things are getting better, I, I still think it's one of the toughest for managers that I've ever seen. And, and the reason I think that is because not only do we have financial difficulties in companies, but we have social difficulties in companies. If I think about 2008, yeah, everybody had financial issues, but they could still come to work each day and laugh with each other and, you know, see each other and interact with each other. This is a little bit different. You know, people are working remotely. They don't know how to cope with the challenges in their personal lives. They've got their kids to deal with in their schools. They've got their parents. They've got their own health, by the way, that they're worried about. And, um, and so there's real emotionals out, emotional issues out there. There really are. And I think, you know, first of all, I don't, I don't have any easy solutions, but I, I think there's a couple things people should be aware of, managers should be aware of. Number one, they have got to manage with a heart today. I mean, I, I, I talk a lot about heart, the importance of heart in my book. I think it's important that leaders ask and listen before they act today. I mean, I really, really think that it's all about up here, listening. Um, I think you, and the other thing is, I don't think you can expect people to come to you. I think people are harboring a lot of this stuff deep down inside of them. And I think leaders have to go to their people and ask questions as opposed to expecting their people to come to them. Um, I think empathy and flexibility matter greatly in this environment. And um, so that's the first thing. I'd say the second thing is that I, I, I talk a lot in the book about the importance of delegating, trusting, and recognizing. If you want to build trust in any organization, you better start by trusting them, uh, your people. And, uh, but I think to, in today, with people working so remotely um, in, in various locations, it's really hard to micromanage. And I hope, I hope leaders out there, those leaders that are micromanagers are probably going crazy right now because you just monitors you know i can i can be with you for an hour but when we hang up i'm not watching you for the next three or four maybe eight hours i i don't know and there's dogs barking in the background of these calls and there's babies crying and there's zoom calls that 
are just, it's crazy, you know? So I think as a manager, you need to give people the freedom to do other things like tend to their babies and like tend to their home life because there's such a melding today between their business and their personal lives that if you expect to micromanage them, um, you know, every minute of the day, you're going to drive them nuts. Um, and so I think delegating and recognizing and trusting is, is critically important. And then I'd say the third thing um, is communicating. I mean, when I was at Prologis, the one thing I found out as a leader is that you have to communicate over and over and over. And you think everybody gets it the first time and maybe 30% get it. And then the second time you communicate it, maybe you get it up to 50. <laughs> and the third time, by that time, maybe you get to 90. But the fact of the matter is that you've got to over communicate with simple and relevant messages. Um, I think that's critically important. The other thing that I, I think is important is, is you got it. You can't, you, you, you must avoid procrastination, especially in emails and correspondence like that. I, I think, you know, people when they're remote, they, you know, they, they're not there next to you. They can't walk into your office and say, Hey, I sent you an email X number, you know, uh, a days ago, you know, I never got a response. No, I mean, and, and people begin to wonder, well, they don't see you. I haven't heard from you. What does that mean? Does that mean I'm not doing a good job? I'm struggling with this. I think the whole remote nature just magnifies the communication aspect and the, and the importance of getting back to people very quickly and communicating over and over and over. And so those are just some simple things that I see and I hear about them on the boards that I'm on and the management team's talking about them all the time. So, I mean, those are just some simple sort of practical COVID thoughts that I had. Interesting. So I think, so you talk about being transparent, you talk about being vulnerable, showing that you're vulnerable, it's okay. People can relate with you. Um, I think not a very common thought among the leaders as even you're pointing it out, right? So it's it's a, it's radical, it's, it's must have. And, and one of the interesting things, so I was talking to one of the investors uh, from the investor circle in New York and I was talking to him about, hey, why the market is going up when we know the shops are closed and we're not making as much the revenue that, that we're expecting. And he said that, Vishal, this time it's different because even traders have kids, even they are stuck with their kids, right? So everyone is now having the same empathetic jolt that, okay, we are all in this together, right? So it's not that yep. hey, some other city is going through this and we are we are here, so we I can't relate. We all can relate to this particular problem. So with that thought, I think if I if I put sort of your 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 sort of ideology on top of it, it gives an it gives an interesting opportunity to all the leaders, right? We are all empathetic because we all have to see our kids like ten times a day. Many of us are not seeing as you brightly pointed out at our co-workers um eight hours out of, out of out of ten and now it's all trust and believe that i'm very uncomfortable with that i have to somehow build inside me so do you like from your vantage point and you are managing a lot of companies and you're in a lot of companies boards conversations do you even even do you see this covid opportunity as a as a wake-up call or at least as as that soothing music that hopefully translate the leadership in ideology that you are pushing. Yes, I I I, I actually do. I'm I'm actually very optimistic. I I saw a survey um, recently, and I can't tell you exactly where. I think it was Willis, where um, there you know a lot of companies today are doing 
are surveying their employees. I mean, that's one really be great benefit. Um, one board that I'm on is actually surveying the employees every other month and trying to get a sense for what their employees are thinking. And, um, and I saw a satisfaction survey recently. And I, I, again, I think it was from Willis where they mentioned um, that 80, over 80% 80 of people surveyed um, are saying that their corporate culture is actually better, which is interesting to me. Now that doesn't, that doesn't alleviate their stress that they have, but it, but it does mean that I think managers are doing a better job of reaching out. I can just tell you that being on the board calls that I'm on, it is the topic du jour in all of my board calls. The boards are asking, well, geez, how is everybody? You know, how's everybody doing? And you're hearing all these stories about, you know, uh, on, on one board I'm on, the company is actually um, helping people with their finances. Um, uh, on another board that I'm on, um, they're actually um, referring employees to, um, uh, various consultants that will, you know, help them emotionally um, through through some of the processes. As I said, they're they're being surveyed. I think, you know, and, and in one case, one of the boards I'm on, they had to let go of a number of different people, and they actually gave their employees sensitivity training, if you can believe that, as to how to lay off people. I mean, these are things that you would have never seen in corporate America ten years ago, at least certainly not in a broad brush basis. So in some respects, I think what you say is true. I think that um, companies have to be more sensitive to it. And, um, you know, will it continue? I hope so. Um, I, I hope we all learn from it. Um, but that doesn't, that doesn't negate the difficulty, as I said, of the people on the other end and the things that they have to go through. I think it's really unprecedented times today. Um, and I, I really think employers need to be very, very sensitive, and I think they are making a lot of strides. We'll resume after a short break. This part of the podcast is brought to you by First Friday Fair, fastest AI-powered way to find your next opportunity. Check out the website firstfridayfair.tao.ai and find your next dream job. Let's get back to the podcast. In that regard. Interesting. And and um, another thing that was fascinating about this conversation is, so um, you are from a CFO background going into a CEO. I think that's, again, so we we spoke, many of the leaders that, that I, I, I've spoken with, they have, okay, CFOs, they just care about the bottom line and all that. So there's, there's that sort of concept going on with them and say, hey, I am the artist in this equation. He is the statistician in this equation. So now, like looking at yourself coming from the CFO um, seat to out and in as a CEO, how has that journey been? Like, how is is like are you well equipped for it? And just walk us through the journey. <laughs> well, that's hard. I would say, um, yeah, I had to make that transition. I, I definitely had to make that transition. But sometimes you can marry them together. Um, I like to talk about examples. So let me give you um, something that happened at Prologis. So um, I remember a time where we had to, um, well, this is probably three or four months into my tenure there as CEO. Um, we had we came to the decision in a management meeting, we, we were gonna have to lay off about a third of our workforce. And a third of your workforce is tough. I mean, it's one thing when you lay off 5%, that might be fat, but when you get to 30%, you're laying off a lot of bone. And um, we laid off some really good people. 
And I can remember being in the management meeting and we were all looking at the numbers as we as management people all do. And um, one of my um, associates said, um, hey, Walt, um, let's talk about the timing associated with when we tell people. And he said, you know, we're going to probably need about 30 to 45 days to figure out who gets laid off. And I said, um, hmm, okay. And, and his next comment was, so we're going to need, you know, let's, let's not tell employees for 30 days. And I said, no, 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 we can't do that. Now, you know, the numbers part of me said, well, we need to get every number right, okay? We need to get every person right. Um, we need to do this perfectly. But then I realized that, you know, the day before I saw the somber look on all these people's faces. And let me tell you, there was a lot of water cooler talk around that. And even if there weren't water coolers, there were people talking right, you know, right next to each other's offices a lot about, oh my God, what are we going to be laid off? And so people knew it was coming. And I remember thinking, that's not the way we build trust. The way we build trust is to get in front of our employees and tell them tomorrow that we're going to, now as a public company, we actually had to make a public announcement, but that meant we had to make a public announcement first, like immediately, and then meet with our employees, okay? So we did that, and we took them through the math. Now I'm gonna put my CFO hat on. Um, I, you know, there were people on the management team said, well, they're not gonna really understand the math. I said, well, that doesn't matter. We have to show them the math. And we got up there, and we got up there, my CFO and I, and a couple others, we got up there for probably a half an hour to 45 minutes and took them through the math associated with if we didn't lay off a third of the workforce, we weren't going to be around in a year. So what I'm trying to get at, Michelle, is that we had to marry the math. We had to marry the numbers with this whole notion of transparency and openness and building trust, right? And sometimes they are in conflict. Sometimes you can't be perfect about things. But I think what happened was when we were transparent with people and we actually told them that day, we said, by the way, we could have waited 30 days because we don't have the answers, but we did. And we told you today, we made the announcement today because we thought it was the right thing to do. And that in and of itself, trust in the organization, right? So sometimes you have to put the numbers aside and I had to learn how to do that. I had to learn put the perfectionist aside, put, you know, you know, what I thought was the right thing to decide and, and, and really try to have a more of a heart for our people. Um, I don't know if that example communicates, but, uh, but that's what went through my head when you asked me that question. <laughs> no, I think absolutely. I think that's, um, and thank you for sharing that. So now let's, let's get on, on this fabulous book, uh, Transfluence. So yeah. tell us the, tell us the premise behind this book, like why you wrote this book. Okay. So the book is going to be published at the end of September, as you mentioned. Um, Transfluence stands for transformational influence. I think as a leader, you got a lot of objectives to accomplish. Okay. My objective when I took over at Prologis was very simple. Turn around the company, put it on a good financial footing. That was the objective that was communicated. And if you were to ask me what I got up thinking about every morning, it generally was that. But I began to learn that your actually your most important objective is the influence you have on people. In other words, it's not about the result as much as it is about the journey. And if you get the journey right, you actually get the result right. 
but sometimes we don't put enough faith in that. And, and, and so I think it, it starts with understanding that it's not about you, but it's about the influence that you have on other people. It's about making other people better. Okay. So we started thinking about this concept, transformational influence. The more we talked about it, we said, oh, well, the, the, that's short for transfluence. And we looked up the word transfluence. I'm talking about literally how we did this. We looked it up and we, and the, the, the definition of the word, there is actually a word. And the definition is water that runs through a stream, almost like a kind of something that flows through, like a stream would flow past you, right? And we start thinking, well, that's actually very similar to transference because it comes from, it flows from the heart of a leader. And so, you know, that's what transfluence is. Transfluence starts with the notion that it is about building trust, that there is nothing more important in an organization. If you want to make a transformational influence on somebody's lives, um, if you want them to be the best they can be, it is all about building trust. Um, and then building trust gets back to the things that I talked about with you, overcoming your fear and pride, you know, open, you know, acting in a very transparent way and leading with a strong core of authentic values, those sorts of things. I think all translate into what transfluence is all about. It's leadership that builds trust in an organization. That's what we did in the turnaround at Prologis. Interesting. And um, I think so when, when we talk about culture, right? So. Um, I remember that um, I was, I don't know if I'm talking, uh, I, I spoke with someone about um, transformation. And I think this is one of the best definition that I got about uh, transformation was that, hey, imagine this is a cruise ship, right? So, and, and you realize that there's a rock coming and you want to move left, right? So in cruise ships business, if you see a rock, you're already late, right? So probably you should, you should, ro you should uh, rotate the rudder and then maybe in couple of hours late you see the ship move the, the ship moves and when you run a bigger companies right so that's so that's the that's the culture right so it's not if i realize something is missing i just induce my uh, impacts and then we take a leap of faith and then probably in couple of months we see something making an impact and that becomes sort of one of the most frustrating part when it comes to sort of transform transformatively changing an organization yes what like so what what do you think and what's your resolve or what do you suggest about that well i i i think i, I think you're absolutely right I, I i don't think that things change overnight um one thing i found though is that and 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 just to put things into context obviously i was going through a crisis but we're going through a crisis today too and one thing i found in a crisis is that people are, are even more attentive to leadership than they are when you're not in a crisis. When things are actually going well, they're distracted. Believe it or not, when people are in a crisis, even though they're distracted, they're highly focused on you as a leader. And so I actually think if you lead by example, if you tell them how you're going to lead, and then you lead by that example, okay, I think that... Um, their antennas are up and i think you have a higher a better opportunity to to actually uh, influence the culture in the organization because people's antennas are up does that make sense um um 
and, and so and and so that's you know that's what I that's what I saw and that's what I see during a crisis. Um, and so I want to interject another story that I think was was really important to me. It actually had a real impact on me. Um, again, a couple months into my leadership tenure, I got a call from an investment banker who was from Morgan Stanley. And um, he's, you know, and, and by the way, the Wall Street Journal ran an article on us, um, a front page article talking about how we were, you know, maybe the next real estate company to go bankrupt and blah, blah, blah. And so, you know, it, the cat was out of the bag. Our, obviously, our, our share price was down 96%. So our investors knew that was going to have thought that was going to happen. Too. Um, anyway, my investment banker friend said, well, would you like to talk to John Mack, who was the CEO of Morgan Stanley at the time? And by the way, John Mack was revered. CEO. I mean, it very, very much loved by his people. And John said to me, um, and so I, I said, yes, I'll do it. So I got on with John and, and I, I, I said, you know, John, I read a lot in the papers about how the Fed, sec uh, the, the Fed and the Treasury Secretary are trying to jam you guys together, maybe with another uh, bank out there. And I know you're dealing with all this stuff, but that's not what I'm worried, what I'm concerned about. What I want to know is how you're managing your people. He said to me, oh my gosh, he said, well, well, he said, I haven't always been the greatest manager, but I've learned over the years to manage the business on the basis of the three H's. And I said, what the heck is that? And he said, um, he said, well, he said, I think the best leaders in the world are humble. He said, I think the best leaders in the world are honest. And he said, in this day and age, I think a banker needs to have a sense of humor. In other words, you gotta have, you gotta have some humor about you. And I struggled with that word humor because I'm not a, I'm not the funniest guy in the world. But I think what John was really saying is that you need to have a human side of you. People need to be able to relate to you, right? If that means cracking a joke, great. But um, and so I started. And one of the things I write about in this book is the value of what I call a three H core, and that is, what does it mean as a leader to be humble? What does it mean to be honest? And what does it be, mean to be human? And so when I talk about a crisis and I talk about how you need to have a strong set of authentic values and to answer your question, when I talk about how you change a culture and the, and, and what you want people to emulate, that's what I think I want people to emulate. That's what I began to think I wanted people to know me by. I wanted to have a level of humility. Um, I wanted to be brutally honest and transparent. And I wanted to have a heart for them. I wanted to show them that I cared. And I wasn't always successful at it. I can tell you instances where I wasn't. Um, but I think over time when people see that, they actually begin to emulate that. It doesn't happen overnight, as you said. It doesn't happen even in a month or two. It happens over a year or two. It should happen by a year, I think, or two. Um, people begin to realize that that's the way they have to act. If Walt acts that way, or if the management team acts that way, I've got to, I've got to act that way, you know? And so it does happen. It doesn't happen overnight, but it happens. Interesting. So if, if, if you wear your CFO hat and, and say, if you, if you look around the industry as such, right? So if you look around how many companies and leaders are there who are not transparent, who are sort of very, in their bubbles, trying to do their things, managing their stock price as well, beating expectations. And vis-a-vis -vis some of the role models that are out there today, which we sort of aspire to 
when it comes to transparency and and leadership and sort of we look at that and you see that um the um the company with no transparency or limited transparency they the statistically they are more than than company who are like pretty much like very radical in comes to it, when it comes to being transparent and understanding like showing the market what they what they stand for and all that what would you so if 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 you wear a skeptics hat right so what would you what would you say to the skeptics saying okay the number speaks right so that side is also has form both better successes why should i come this way what would you tell to those skeptics well i i would say that um i'm i i'm i've never made the statement that if you aren't then you will never be in other words if you aren't transparent if you aren't if you don't lead with a heart then you will never be successful i i will never make that statement there's a lot of companies out there that have been successful over time um that have had command and control leadership styles they just it. i mean you know so i'm not saying that i guess what i'm saying is this bichel and that is that um best best example i can give you is if i go back to 1979 which is going back a long time okay but i took my first job out of college leadership was command and control um i was happy to be employed leadership paid little attention to culture um you know people were less critical back then there was no social media they were less vocal basically my job was more transactional the truth of the matter is that i collected a paycheck i needed a job and they needed me to do a job okay that was and that was leadership let me com- compare and contrast that to the day i took over as ceo okay um when i i, I took over i i probably received nearly 1000 calls emails texts from everybody from equity and bond investors to sell side analysts to rating agencies to new publications to my employees to my board okay um there were online chats that were rampant about our future and my leadership could i do it couldn't i do it i mean everything is so exposed today the world is changing really rapidly okay and people expect more from leaders today they just do By the way, CEOs now last less than 5 years in their job. Some of that's by choice and some of that is because they're being let go of, okay? And so we live in a world with greater access to information, more diversity in people, but also in geography, in where they work, um with accelerating progress, okay? And 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 the fact of the matter is these are changing climates. I talk about this in my book too. I just think it's changing climates. And I'm not saying that that kind of command and control leadership can't be successful, but I think increasingly the odds are less and less and less. Um and and, and I I think you know we've got fewer face-to-face interactions today, we've got an overabundance of false narratives to manage through. We have more voices to be heard. Um we have a more distributed workforce. We can go on and on and on about this. And and companies, I just think that that the old model is is going to become older and older and older over time i think leadership today requires a more constant drumbeat of of honest and open communication i think it requires value based values based leadership and it requires leadership with a heart and people notice that and yeah our unemployment rate is high higher today 
So people need a job. But let me tell you, you get back down to the 3% unemployment and people have choices and they hop in companies like that. You want to hire good talent, you gotta, that's the way you got to manage. And that's why it's so important to me to talk about it because I think future leaders have to understand that this is the future. I truly believe it is. Interesting. So um, another thought. So I, I was speaking with one of the um, mid-size apparel companies um, CEO, and and he was telling me he sells he sells sports apparels, and and he told me an interesting story. He said, Vishal, whenever um, every night or every evening I make a rule to just take a walk and look at say school uh, like school playgrounds and look at kids using the sports apparel products. They you just see. Because his perspective was that as a, as a leader, many times I don't, I just only see the stats. I only see numbers, right? I don't see that there are real people behind that number, right? And yeah. and he said that this this particular thing keeps me sane because many times I don't, like I fail to connect the two things together. Like why that number and many times number doesn't tell me the complete story that yeah. the particular thing is saying. What do you think about that um, uh, story? I love it. Um, I, I, uh, for me, um, every morning I, I get up and I, um, I spend, some people would say meditation. I'll, I'll just say it's prayer, but I spend between a half an hour and, and an hour just sitting down. And, and before I answer my first email, I just think, and in my case, I pray. And I'm not saying that your listeners should be prayers, uh, prayers out there. I, that everybody has their own religious beliefs. But I will say that I think that it is critically important for leaders to step back and smell the roses a little bit, but also realize what they have, realize their blessings, realize that there are other things that are going on around them than their problems. And I think that however you choose to do that, in my case, it's in prayer in the morning, um, but I think that's powerful. I really think it's powerful. And, and um, I don't, I, I talk a little bit about that in the book, but I don't want to go down the path of thinking, you know, having people think that that's, that's the only solution. It's not, but it certainly mm. fits in. It fits into the toolbox, that's for sure. Interesting. And, and you also talk about, say, um, um, culture right it, it's all about changing culture and and i think um if you if you see in your um uh, uh basically prologist story eight your eight month older self right was frustrated at not not being able and you said that you have exhausted all your influence on the company and then you left the company then First you came time. back right yeah. right yes so if, if, if you look back on, or if you say, take uh, for an example, an ex leader today, who is like pretty much in your shoe, um, exhausted all the influence, things are, the ball is not moving. What do you advise to those guys? What do you, because culture, changing culture is really hard. And if, if you have a strong culture, because many of the problem is not really lack of it. It's too much of it or not, not ability, not more agility in it. So what would you advise to those leaders who are struggling and just saying, maybe let me look out the window now? Wow. You know, you have to put yourself into each, each person's situation. I, I think it is, um, you know, look, I, I, okay, I left once. Um, and I, there might be a time and place to leave. 
I mean, in other words, if you look around and you say, um, I can't, I can't do anything more or, or more importantly, from my perspective, I don't enjoy the person I work with. I don't, I don't think that person will ever get it. Um, it may be the right thing to leave. It was the right thing for me in, in 2008 to leave. But I, I would say this, I, I think jobs should be fun. Um, people should enjoy the things that they do. And if they're not enjoying the things that they do, and by the way, the number one reason people don't enjoy what they do tends to be their manager. Um, there's all kinds of surveys that will say that. It's not how much they get paid, um, it's their manager. And um, so if you don't feel like you can make that kind of impact and that kind of change, then I get the fact that maybe their job isn't right. We all should have fun. I wasn't having fun in 2008, you know? Um, but this book is not just about, and what I have to say is not just about leading in the business sense. We're all leaders. We're all leaders. And you think about it, you're leading by having this podcast, you know? <laughs> um, we lead our families. We lead our neighbors. We lead the people that are around us, right? Um, and so even if you were to leave your job because you don't feel like you can make an impact there, don't underestimate the fact that you're still leading in everything you do. And your job ought, ought to be, we ought to be spending more time thinking about the people around us, our wife, in my case, my kids, my neighbors. Um, and, and, you know, how do I lead how do I lead, you know, what, what kind of person am I around them too, right? And so I think in many respects, what I have to say relates to your personal life as, as well as your business life, although the context of it is much more focused on, on the business side. Interesting. And slightly on the funnier side of, the, of things. So one of, the, one of the leaders that I spoke to, he put it in a very interesting way. He said, Vishal, many, many of the employees look at their companies as their girlfriends. Okay, so the shiny thing now, maybe going off to the next, uh, so, so they're always hunting for the next shinier girlfriend in their journey. And, and, and he said that, um, and if, if, you, if, you, if you talk about the leadership, they should, like many of the people who are actually transformative in nature, they look at the company as their kids, right? They're stuck with it. Ah, so they have to, they, they, should, they should better fix it, right? So, and, and, and he said that, um, and you you pointed out that um, the CEO um, is now getting five year tenure, like uh, the typical tenure is now five years, and it's yeah. shrinking. Mm -hmm. It's uh, it's it's shrinking. So now with that in mind, right? So it doesn't give you too much time to enjoy your kid, and pretty much like push you to just date, right? So so how would you how would you see uh, this whole thing turn out? Uh, turn out, and what what what's your what, what's your thinking about this? Well, I, you know, I, I was a CEO for, I think, four years or so, maybe four and a half years, something like that. But um, I, I, was a, I was the president and chief operating officer for four years before that. I was a chief financial officer for six years before that. And in all of those roles, I mean, you don't have to be a C-suite executive to lead people. I mean, you know, and before that, I was a regional director and I was leading people. And so it's not just the CEO, it's, it's wherever you are. You have to realize that you're always leading people. Even if you're leading sideways, even if you look at your peers, you're leading people. And, and, and our goal ought to be to make those people better. Um, so I, yes, I think the ten tenure of a CEO is shorter because it's much more brain damage today and there's a lot more pressure for sure. But I think that it doesn't, that doesn't negate the fact that we're leaders 
most of our lives. And we need to be cognizant of the tools that it takes to build trust because all of us have a goal in mind. Sometimes it's a financial goal, sometimes it's other. But if you want to reach that goal, you got to build trust. You have to build trust above you, below you, sideways to yourself and the like. And the more trust you build, the more successful you'll be. Interesting. So about this book, right? When you, when you were writing this book, who who is the ideal reader? Like who is it? Who is this book written for? Right. I get asked that all the time. And I would say that um, it's a leadership book. So anybody that is that feels they're leading in whatever capacity, it works for them. I like to think that the a, a large majority of the readers will be emerging leaders, um, will be leaders that not have led for 20 or 30 years because I think most of those people truly believe they, they may be seeking things that they on the margin that they can do better. Uh, but most people have their recipe by then. I think in some respects, the emerging leader is really trying to figure out, you know, how do I run my company a little bit better? Um, or how do I lead this flock of people that I have a little bit better? There are people that are more open, um, I think, to, to this type of leadership. Um, and so I would say that's probably the number one um, group of people, but I do think it's applicable in many cases to almost everything that we do. In life. Mm. Interesting. No, I think I, I do I, I do appreciate this book, I think, because you right, rightly pointed out this is the best time for something like, like this emerge. And yeah. I, I, some like um, because we all are living in transformative time, and I think this something uh, when anyone share their perspective, I think I do appreciate that for sure. Because we we need to see what has some of the leaders have done in their in their times, and because we are all are seeing um, these things front end. So now let's spend on on of uh, some of your personal journey. And by the way, thank you so much for be, being really candid about um, the book and and your um, prologious background. So we ask all of our guests to share some of the qualities, some of the traits that has really helped them be successful and be what they what they are. Like, what would you attribute those your success to? Which qualities that has really helped you become what you are? Boy, um, you know, I, I I talked a lot about my upbringing. I, I I truly believe my parents had a lot to do with the things that um, uh, the way that I lead. I I talked a lot about my boss at Trammell Crow Company and and how you know he's influenced me. Um, I, I, I think that, you know, the tidbits that I would, I would, I would give to people would be, I, I really think that the more we can work on, the more we can work on, um, being less about ourselves and more about others, the better off we can be. And I would just say that there was a coach in my life when I was at Prologis uh, Prologis that I hired to coach the whole management team. And um, one time, uh, you know, and he did extensive 360 degree evaluations of us and personality tests, everything, okay? And I, I got back and I met with him the first time and he said, well, first of all, let me give you the good news. The good news is a lot of people like working for you. He said, the bad news is that your empathy scores are not all that high. I said, what? What do you mean, my empathy? I mean, I, I care for people. He said, no, well, your empathy scores are not that high. And um, he said, the reason is because people like working for you, but they they watch you running around like a chicken with your head cut off in the office. 
you fear not succeeding, but your relationships are suffering as a result of it. You need to spend more time with your people. And it was like a dagger in my heart. But let me tell you something. Um, having a coach, having a personal board of directors, having an accountability group, but having somebody that is willing to be brutally honest about you and watch what you do is actually quite important, I think, in, in life. In other words, it's not just the people we emulate, but I also think it's the people that are willing to tell us what we can do better and, and truly take an interest in us. In my case, I had to hire somebody to do it. But I'm gonna tell you something, I learned a lot. And I actually changed my management style. I tweaked it, it's probably a better way of saying it, to um, appear um, more empathetic and also to um, become more empathetic over time. And so um, the advice I would give to people is that I think you got to look outside of yourself and sometimes it takes somebody outside of yourself to tell you what you need to do. In my case, that's what I did. Interesting. And um, thank you for sharing that, by the way. I think that's that's really um, having a coaches. I think it's I truly believe it's 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 appropriate. I think thank you for sharing that. Um, some of the books that has really influenced you. So if, if suppose or some of the books that you are reading right now, uh, we ask, ask all of our guests to share some of their favorite reads. Like what would you call them? Like what, what are some of those you can share? Yeah, so you, you might think that I will list a bunch of leadership books, um, but many of the books, uh, by the way, the one behind you, Conscious Capitalism, I love. I've read that book, that's a fantastic book, but many of them, and that was written by a CEO. Uh, but many of them are, are not written by CEOs. They're written by consultants who haven't lived it. And so I have a bias. That doesn't mean that there's not a lot of great leadership books that are written by consultants, but I have a bias. I like to read people that have actually gone through, you know, gone through the war. Um, and so I actually enjoy leadership history books that talk about presidents. Um, David McCulloch's books um, on Truman, David McCulloch's book on Adams, 1776, which talks about Washington and how he handled, you know, the, the the difficult times. Those books to me are terrific. They're they're leadership books. They're truly, and they, you know, they're not autobiographies, but they are biographies about, I think, great leaders who shaped this country. Um, and then there were two really impactful books that I read a long time ago that that truly impacted sort of what I do today. And that is, I read a book by Bob Buford. Uh, the, and the name of the book was Halftime. And Bob talks in the book, he's passed away since this, but he, the, the tagline of the book is taking your career from success to significance. And I oftentimes thought in the last, he, he, he talks about in the book that you have two times in your life. You have the first half and you have the second half. And the first half is all about building your career and sending your kids to college and so forth and so on. Um, the second half is about giving back. Um, and, and um, take your career from success to significance. So that had a real impact on my life and kind of what I do today. I'm writing the book and talking to people about what I think real leadership is. And then there was another book that I read called The Purpose Driven Life by Rick Warren, um, who's a pastor. But um, you know, Rick Warren writes a lot about um, purpose, that we all have a purpose and we should be looking to what that purpose is and, and that we all crave meaning in our lives. And um, both of those books were really impactful to me. 
interesting thank you for sharing that um from the good list there so now we're at the last question um so as a closing remark like what would you um what would be your parting thought what would you if if I, our listeners and viewers would take away something from our conversation what would that be so i would say this uh vishal not for first of all i would thank you for having me on the show but i would say um i think too often we define success uh the wrong way or or very in a very narrow way right i mean you know we watch sports and we ask who won um we we say that the stocks that have outperformed are quote unquote winners and others are losers and so you know for me i i like to turn that around i i i would say and 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 by the way my measure of success was did walt turn around the company okay um but i think that you know so sometimes we we define success too much by results and we don't define it enough by the journey and and um i i would just leave your listeners with this you know i don't all don't only focus on the results the journey of getting there also matters and part of that journey is the influence that you have on other people um you might hit your results but if people have a bad taste about how you did it i don't think you've succeeded i really think it's the influence you have on other people that is the long lasting you know um the thing that just the that that lives it's a gift that just keeps giving and so think about your journey think about your leadership journey not just the results in getting there that's that's what i would leave Well, beautifully put. Um, and uh, with that, thank you so much, Walt. Um, and again, I do appreciate um, your effort in writing this book. I think, as I as I as I uh, said before, this is truly a transformative time, as we all agree. And we need a voice of reason. We need some of the leaders to come out and talk about their journey and what they did, because we need as many playbooks as are made available. And I do appreciate every effort that you're doing. to number one serve back number two tell us how you survived during the during your turmoils and thank you and wish you nothing but success in your in your journey and the book you're always welcome back on the podcast love to have you back sometime in future talking about the success of this book and beyond thank you so much thank you so much appreciate it vishal and thanks for having me um it has been an honor and it has been an absolute pleasure to be here thank you I was sick of home but actually I was homesick never really knew that I would have to grow up so quick I'm so uncomfortable don't know anybody here just a couple dudes that I met once that's it and I go into the booth feeling nervous got butterflies in my stomach like I'm so worthless is the mic gone I don't know how to work this inside I'm breaking down I hope I'm not a bonus